Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on March 7th, Lord's Day Service. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, it is through your word that you are still ministering to us. And though we lose sight of you a thousand and ten thousand times, we ask that you would help us to clearly see your son Jesus Christ through your word this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the Gospel of Mark is about the object of our faith. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everyone has faith in something or someone. And for Christians, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we will see in this text this morning is that because Jesus is the object of our faith, we will take people to Jesus. And so the focus of our attention this morning is on the fact that Christians take people to Jesus. The substance of the Christian faith is that we go to Jesus and we don't go alone. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia, which means called out ones. In other words, when we go to Jesus, we don't go alone. We go as the called out ones. We go as the people of God. And we take each other to Jesus. This is no small point in today's world. Because today when the word Christian is used, it's often used in some sort of political context and nothing more. And while the Bible gives Christians clear guidance on what to think about political issues, that is hardly the substance of the Christian faith. And so as we consider this morning that Christians are people who take others to Jesus, we're going to notice three things. First, we're going to notice the commitment of taking people to Jesus. Second, we're going to notice the opposition that happens 
when we take people to Jesus. And third, we'll notice the reason we take people to Jesus. And so first, let's notice the commitment of taking people to Jesus. Look with me, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now this is the scene of the story. And so this story takes place in Capernaum. And so you've got Nazareth. Jesus is from Nazareth. The town of Cana is 15 miles north of Nazareth. And then the town of Capernaum is 10 miles east of Cana. And this entire region is known as the region of Galilee. And so Jesus is here in the region of Galilee, not far from his hometown of Nazareth. And apparently he is living in Capernaum because it says in verse 1, he was at home. And presumably he is living with Simon and Andrew. That's mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 29. And so this is his home, a temporary home probably, but it's his home for the moment. And notice what it says in verse 2. It says that many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door. In other words, Jesus had people in his house. So think about this. Jesus, the object of our faith, the model of how we should live life in this world, had many people gathered at his home. And what is Jesus doing with all of these people gathered at his home? Well, it says in verse 2, he was preaching the word to them. So think about this. Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, the model of how we should live life in this world, not only has lots of people in his home, but he has as his chief concern to preach the word to the people gathered in his home. And so this is the scene of the story. And so look with me next, verses 3 and 4. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, many of you probably remember this story. This is that story, heavily featured in children's Sunday school, where they take the roof off to bring their friend to Jesus. Many of you probably remember this story. And they removed the roof. You think, well, okay, why did they remove the roof? Well, they removed the roof because the crowd is so large they can't get to Jesus. And so people are there at Jesus' house standing shoulder to shoulder. They try to get near to Jesus, but they can't. And so these four friends are trying to bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. But there's no way to get through the crowd. They don't turn around and go home. They don't turn to each other and say, well, you know, we tried, and it's the thought that counts. When you know that your friend needs Jesus' healing power, and when you know that Jesus is the only one that can heal your friend, you don't get discouraged by a large crowd. You don't toast to good intentions and go back to your daily routine. No one would have judged the friends had they turned around and got home. No one would have judged them. They put in all this effort. They carried their friend to the house. They had really 
good intentions. They're good friends. They're better friends than you or I. You would not have judged them had they turned around and got home. And yet we read in verse 4, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So what are they doing? Well, I'm not asking a building construction question. Yeah, they removed the roof, but that's not the point. What are they doing as they remove the roof? They are pursuing Jesus on behalf of their friend because their friend in that moment couldn't do it. So what are they doing? They are pursuing Jesus on behalf of their friend. So in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And so it says there that Jesus saw their faith. And the there is plural. Jesus saw the faith of the four friends plus the paralytic. It doesn't say Jesus saw the paralytic's faith and then healed the paralytic. It says Jesus saw their faith. He saw the faith of the four friends plus the paralytic. Why does it say it that way? Why does it draw attention to the collective faith of the group before the forgiveness of sins rather than drawing attention to the individual faith of the paralytic? Is it that Jesus attributed the faith of the four friends to the paralytic despite the paralytic's actual lack of faith? No, that's not why. Is it that the faith of one man or four men, four men together can magically generate faith in another man. No, that's not why the author draws attention to their collective faith. Rather, it's that the faith of the four friends leads them to pursue Jesus on behalf of their friend, who is in need of the healing power of Christ. Their faith leads them to pursue Christ for their friend so that their friend can get near to Christ. And once the paralytic gets near to Christ, once he catches a glimpse of Christ and receives the preaching of the word that was mentioned in verse 2, then the paralytic himself has faith in Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to faith? Look at verse 5 again. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, when Jesus sees faith, he responds with forgiveness. Jesus never looks upon faith and withholds forgiveness. Jesus said in John 6, 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so here you have a group of people pulling each other to Christ. Pulling each other to Christ. What if we began pulling each other to Christ? What if we began pulling each other to Christ? Not pushing each other towards cultural relevance. Not pushing each other to paint a cheap, glossy coat of Christ see-through on the latest secular cultural outrage. Not pushing each other to Dr. Phil or Norman Vincent Peale self-help advice. What if we began pulling each other to Christ, to his word, to his feet? And what would we find together 
at his feet. The four friends don't just take their sick friend. They take him as if it was their responsibility towards him. Responsibility. Not as in their eternal fate is the same as their friend. But responsibility as in bearing his burden. Responsibility as in we are all in this together. Oh, and it's not just a slogan. We're actually going to do something about the fact that we're bearing his burden. And it's interesting because our modern mentality is that friendship is about laughing at the same jokes and having the same hobbies. Our modern mentality is that friendship is just this you know, culturally agreed upon system for organizing people according to their likes and dislikes. But the four friends do not take their sick friend because they like watching the game together. They take him because they feel responsibility towards him. They feel responsibility to take him to Jesus. And so the first thing we see in this passage is that the substance of the Christian faith is that we go to Jesus and we don't go alone. Christians have a commitment of taking people to Jesus. The second thing we see in this passage, notice the opposition that happens when we take people to Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here we have the scribes. And what are the scribes saying about Jesus? Well, let's just say they have some misgivings about Jesus. And they articulate their misgivings in the form of questions. And the nub of their misgivings is found in the last question of verse 7 when they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is a theological question. And so when they ask this question, they assume only one answer can be given. Question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Answer, no one. And so this series of questions is really not questions, it's an accusation. They are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is defined in John 10.33 when it says, We're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. So blasphemy is when man claims to do what only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus of Nazareth claims to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus claims to be God. And the scribes, who consider Jesus nothing more than a man, they consider this blasphemy. But consider the accusation of the scribes more closely. Look at it again, verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Pay attention to how the scribes blend truth with falsehood. What is true of what they say? Well, it is true that only God can forgive sins. But what is false about what they say? Well, they deny that Jesus can forgive sins. What should we learn from this? Well, from this we learn how opposition to Jesus works. 
when people oppose Jesus, they tend to mix truth with lies. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to be aware that we are servants of the truth in a world full of lies. And when the world opposes our Lord, their lies aren't always obvious. Their lies might appear to have truth. Their lies might appear to have credible experts. Their lies might be backed by a giant mob of people holding signs. But they're still lies, even if they're half true. They're lies, even if spoken by a man with a PhD. They're still lies, even if the mob has a lot of angry feelings. And so we must remember, as I once heard it said, that the only person who needs to be more precise than a liar is the person who catches the liar. Are you tired of being lied to by those who oppose your Lord? Well, here's what we need to see. When we take people to Jesus, there will be opposition. And often that opposition is going to blend truth with falsehood. And so the question is, are you prepared for that kind of opposition? Have you prayed for the Spirit's help in dealing with that kind of opposition? Have you prepared your children for that kind of opposition? Have you laid a foundation underneath your feet and underneath your family's feet so that when a lie covered in the gloss of your favorite talking point comes at you, you can swat it away with the authority of the Word of God? And so we've seen first the commitment of taking people to Jesus and second, we've seen the opposition that happens when we take people to Jesus. Third, let's notice the reason we take people to Jesus. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. See, Jesus knows that the scribes doubt that he can forgive sins. So in order to make a visible manifestation of his healing power, and prove undoubtedly that he has authority to forgive sins, Jesus says to the paralytic in verse 11, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so Jesus physically heals the paralytic to prove that he can really forgive sins. And that is why we take people to Jesus. Because at the feet of Jesus, we find the priestly power to forgive sins. Consider the supremacy of the authority of Him who has the power to forgive sins. As J.C. Ryle once said, no angel in heaven, no man upon earth, no church council, no minister of any denomination can take away the sinner's conscience, the load of guilt that rests 
on the sinner's conscience and give him peace with God. They can point to the fountain that washes away all sin. They can declare with authority the way in which God forgives sins. But the angel, the man, the church council, the minister, they cannot absolve by their own authority sin. They cannot put away transgressions. That is the peculiar prerogative of God, a prerogative which He has put in the hands of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so what is the reason that we take people to Jesus? We take people to Jesus because Jesus Christ is our great high priest, and through faith in Jesus, we find absolution. In other words, through faith in Jesus, we are free from the blame and guilt of our sins. Through faith in Jesus, we are released from the eternal consequences and penalty of our sins. How? Well, we stand before God as guilty sinners who have earned the just punishment of our sins. But Jesus Christ, as the high priest, offers himself as a sacrifice between ourselves and God. God's justice demands atonement for our sins. God's holiness makes it absolutely needful. Without an atoning priest, there can be no peace of soul. Jesus Christ is the very priest that we need, mighty to forgive and pardon, tender-hearted and willing to save. And so if you have not sought absolution through faith in Jesus Christ, that means you are still in your sins. And so I encourage you to go to the feet of Jesus. Go to him and trust that he loves you and gave himself for you and will say to you, son, daughter, I see your faith. Your sins are forgiven. And so we see in this passage, first, the commitment of taking people to Jesus. We see the opposition that happens when we take people to Jesus, and we see the reason we take people to Jesus. Let's close by looking at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So what is the response of the crowd who witnessed Jesus' saving power? What well, says in verse 12, they were all amazed and glorified God. Why did they respond this way? It's because we all know that we can't tell a paralytic to rise, take up his bed, and walk. We all know that we can't go and speak to graves expecting the dead to rise. And so when we see Jesus pierce the scales of Leviathan, when we see Jesus slay the sin and save the soul of the sinner, we know that this could be only the work of God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And so they walk away amazed and glorifying God. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we all speak promises but you are the first promise and the whole of every promise that follows. We all speak of the law, but you are the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. We all speak of sacrifice, 
but your one sacrifice forever sanctified your people. And so we confess that you, Lord Jesus, are our all in all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh.